Welcome to CMA Talks, a podcast for the small ensemble music community. My name is Nicole Knight, and I'm the Director of Operations at Chamber Music America. In this episode, we speak with Melody Bukazar Dawkins, a researcher at Slover Lynette Audience Research. Melody will provide some insight into a recent qualitative study focusing on the creative practices of Black folks around the country and their experiences with arts and culture organizations. This study, which CMA constituents may have read about in a recent issue of Chamber Music Magazine, offers some first steps for administrators seeking a more equitable path forward. We'll first hear how the study came about and then delve into the findings and key takeaways that you can use in your own work. A little later in the episode, we'll hear selections from Andy Akiho's Seven Pillars performed by Sandbox Percussion. A 2022 Pulitzer Prize finalist and Grammy-nominated work, Seven Pillars was created with support from Chamber Music America's Classical Commissioning Program. And now for our conversation. This discussion took place over Zoom with additional recordings added for clarity. A researcher at Slover Lynette, Melody Bukazar Dawkins uses both qualitative and quantitative methods in helping cultural organizations get to know their audiences, inform organizational strategy, and become more embedded in their communities. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The full title of this new report is A Place to Be Heard, A Space to Feel Held, Black Perspectives on Creativity, Trustworthiness, Welcome, and Well-Being. Can you give us some background information on why Slover Lynette and its partners conducted this particular study? This study came to be as part of a larger project called Culture and Community in a Time of Transformation, a special edition of Culture Track. So... It's a pretty collaborative effort to keep the cultural sector in dialogue with its participants and with its communities during the pandemic, and also to inform the deeper equity and justice efforts in the years to come. So the project started in 2020, and it was first a large-scale online survey of cultural participants and the general U.S. population. And then we had a follow-up report called Centering the Picture, which specifically focused on experiences and perspectives of um, different racial and ethnic groups in the United States. So one of the findings indicated that Black and African-American respondents were less likely to participate in the range of cultural activities that we included in the survey even though those that did participate did so at the same frequency as the other racial and ethnic groups, which made us wonder whether the list that we provided initially wasn't comprehensive enough and that it didn't bring up those responses from Black participants. That's interesting. So that's kind of um, one thing that we wanted to follow up on in a qualitative phase to see just kind of I guess to see a broader view of what people have been doing, how people have been connecting and finding joy. So that was kind of one of the pieces. Another piece was that um, majority of Black and African-American respondents, they desired a 
change in the arts and culture, cultural organizations, especially in terms of seeing uh, more um, diverse faces and hearing more diverse voices. So we also wanted to explore that a little more. Mm-hmm. And finally, compared to all the other groups, Black respondents had a desire for trustworthy sources of information. Mm-hmm. So we also wanted to see um, kind of um, the context within which this is coming up and also, um, I guess, the nuances there. So we wanted to follow up on that. Mm. So that's kind of the context in which this study came to be. But then it went way beyond following up, following up on the um, um, quantitative findings. So we also wanted to just focus on Black participants and what Black participants have been um, experiencing, going through during not only the pandemic, but during that time, there was a lot happening. Still, a lot is happening, but, you know, we had George Floyd and we had a lot of like televised murders and just so much negativity was happening. So we also wanted to see how people have been finding joy during this time, our people have been finding connection, our people have been finding community. Mm-hmm. So we really wanted to amplify those experiences as well to um, um, make sure that there is not a kind of a one-sided narrative about what Black people have been doing. So that's kind of the overall um, background as to how this study started. Another reason why we really wanted to... Um, focus on black participants was that black voices are usually and historically have been excluded from research efforts or planning efforts or even sidelined. So we really wanted to make sure that we are um, focusing on black people and also not justifying why we're doing this, but just kind of doing it unapologetically. So that's kind of another component of how we went about um, starting this study. So a lot of things came into play, a lot of factors. Yeah. Yeah, there was, um, there was a lot going on in the summer of 2020. And it was a it was a difficult time for all of us and for black folks, especially. Um, So yeah, after the first study, you realized there was so much more to be learned and gleaned. And for this next phase, it looks like you interviewed 50 participants. Can you tell us how you found them? We did. We talked to 50 black people from all over the U.S. So they were from all four regions of the U.S. And um, we tried to really recruit a diverse range of um, experiences and backgrounds. So there were younger people, older people, people from LGBTQ community, people who are disabled. We tried to make sure that we were um, getting as wide a sense of what has been happening in people's lives. I love that you made the conscious effort to be inclusive. I think uh, it's not always something that's acknowledged that there is great diversity within the Black community. So I I appreciate that part of it. Mm-hmm. We don't try to generalize this and say that this is how black people think in the U.S. No, this is how these 50 people were thinking and experiencing things. So we are just kind of uplifting those 50 people's experiences. But then there are a lot of lessons to learn there, too. But the people that we talked to 
some of them had participated in the previous phase because we had a little more information about them and they had already agreed to be contacted for future phases. And then we also um, talked to people recruited via a professional panel. So these people hadn't participated in our initial phase, but they just signed up to provide their opinion. And then we had a very small group of people who were referred to us by the um, collaborating organizations. So we asked them if they would like to, you know, refer a few people who participate in their programming, who would like to kind of talk to us. So it was kind of um, mainly people who previously participated, the professional panel, and then a few people who were referred to us by um, partners. Yeah, that's great. I'd like to reiterate that point you just made. You interviewed 50 people and you are not presenting the results as this is the sum total of the Black experience in this country. We have all the answers. It's all here. Here you go. You're simply yes. saying <laughs> that you are lifting up these 50 voices and this is what these participants had to say. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to make that distinction again. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of um, linked to some of the questions that we received at the beginning as we started the project, you know, like, okay, can we generalize this? Or how does this apply to other people of color? And we always had to kind of push back and say, this is about black people. It's not about any other groups. There can be other studies that focuses on other groups, but we are not trying to generalize or we are not trying to apply mm -hmm. these findings to any other group and say that all people of color are the same because we all have different experiences and even two black people with different backgrounds can experience mm -hmm. different things. So, you know, we really wanted to also highlight those different experiences, but also, you know, there are commonalities of our shared history Absolutely. of being black in the United States, like that brings up some things that are shared. So we tried to highlight those too. But in every conversation that we have, we always highlight to stay away from the urge to generalize. Because I think with research, we sometimes you want to see like, okay, how can we, what can we say in general about this group? But this is more about stories and experiences and just kind of hearing from hearing from people and what they have been doing. So I, they were really generous mm -hmm. to talk to us for 90 minutes and, you know, share what they have been doing and be so candid. And I think that's something to be celebrated, especially given that, you know, we all have been going through such hard times.
That was a selection from Andy Akiho's Seven Pillars, which we'll hear more of a little later. And now, back to my interview with Melody Bukazar-Dawkins. So I understand that there was a lot that went into the design and implementation of this study, and you had many questions you were looking to answer. So what are some of the high-level and big-picture takeaways that you learned from this study? Yes, I can speak to that. Four main themes that um, were revealed throughout this research process. So they were self-care, creativity, trustworthiness, and welcome. And trustworthiness was coupled with trust, and welcome was coupled with belonging a little bit. And I'll get into the nitty-gritty of it a little later. Mm-hmm. But um, it was interesting because we initially didn't really start out thinking about self-care as a theme that we um, aim to investigate. But as we talked to people, that was one theme that just came up so often that we thought it wouldn't be fair to not include it in the reporting. The way people were talking about it was more so related to that famous Audrey Lord quote, which is self um, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. And that's how people were characterizing how they were taking care of themselves during um, times of crises, basically. So it really came through strongly. And people were doing it so that not just to take care of themselves, but also to be able to take care of the ones that they love, the ones that they care about. So it was also community care at the same time. And in terms of the second one, which is creativity, we so initially we wanted to kind of explore that question of why we didn't see those breadth of activities um, in the initial survey. So that's the reason why we were kind of asking people about the types of creative activities they had been doing. Mm -hmm. And this was a very interesting subject because as we started the conversation, a lot of people said, oh, you know, I'm I'm not creative. I'm not, I haven't been doing anything. But then each conversation was about 90 minutes. And as we spoke to people, they revealed more and more stuff. So by the end of 90 minutes, they had counted like, I can't, I can't even quantify. There's so many activity, creative activities that they had been doing. So it was interesting to see that they, it's, the conversation started at one point and ended at a completely different note. So they were thinking about all these different points in which people can be creative. And I think that was kind of a nice way to summarize how many people talked about um, creativity. So, um, and I guess the reason why people said they were being creative was linked to that self-care component just to kind of improve your well-being and connect with others at the same time, but also part of that kind of self-reflection process. So you think about your past, you think about your present and also how that affects your future, um, what you can leave to future generations. So it's really kind of held many people together, many families together, friend groups together, communities together. So it was an interesting concept, even though it started out with, you know, oh, you know, I'm not that creative, to yes, actually, I am super creative. And one important one, I think, one important aspect was that 
you know, embodiment of creativity because a few people said that, you know, being black is in itself a creative act. So the way we talk, the way we walk and the way we, our fashion sense, our everything hair. is already, exactly, <laughs> our hair. So everything that we do, the way we look is already an um, act of creativity, a work of art. So we are walking work, works of art. So that's how some people defined it too. So it was really kind of part of who, part, I guess part of blackness, part of black experience was creativity. creativity. So those are the yeah things that bring me joy personally. <laughs> and so those are types of answers that weren't necessarily on the first uh, study with the quantitative questions about how do you um, experience creativity in your life, but they really came out more after having longer conversations with these individuals. Mm -hmm. I think the, um, that's kind of the beauty of using different types of methods because, you know, with the quantitative research, you were able to look at kind of the frequency mm -hmm. of different experiences or different types of things that people are thinking. But then with the qualitative research, you're able to bring out those stories mm -hmm. and you can have that kind of one-to-one -one interactions with people and it can go one way with one person another way with another person so i think it was it was nice to be able to kind of um, bring these two different methodologies together mm -hmm. because i think they're very complementary mm. in that sense so it works out great and then you had two more areas or pockets. yes trustworthiness mm -hmm, exactly so trustworthiness um so just to summarize this, the way people talked about trustworthiness was very separate from trust. So trustworthiness came before trust. And that's actually how we went into the conversations too. We separated those two concepts because as we, like if you go online right now and write like black people and trust, what pops up is like black people's mistrust in X, black people's distrust in Y. But that really puts the burden of trust on black people rather mm -hmm. than on the institutions and the people that violate that trust in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted to kind of shift that perspective and focus on what's trustworthy. So and that's how people talked about it as well. Mm -hmm. So people talked about how trustworthiness comes before trust. Trust is kind of the end result of a process. And it's a very dynamic process. It's very scientific. So you see evidence of trustworthiness and then you evaluate it and you reach a certain conclusion. But then with the, um, um, as you see new evidence, you can update that conclusion and reach a new conclusion. So it was very dynamic and it was also provisional because you might trust one day and then if it's no longer trustworthy, then you might not trust anymore. So... That was kind of how people talked about um, the concepts of trustworthiness and trust. And in terms of welcome and belonging, we had a similar, um, similar distinction between them. So I think like as we talk in general about welcome and belonging, they usually go together. They're kind of concepts that are mentioned together, but it was very separate for the people that we spoke with. So they talked about how belonging is kind of internal and it just exists anywhere. Nobody we talked to said that they felt like they didn't belong in a space. 
everybody felt like they just belong regardless of what the space is so it was like one person said for example i know that i belong in any place because my ancestors built this country so this is a place of belonging for me but i am made to feel like i don't belong so again that burden was removed from black people as a group to institutions that make black people feel like they don't belong so and that's the perspective we try to really highlight and ask people about okay then what makes a place welcoming enough so that people can express their already existing sense of belonging so people kind of I mean, there were many, many things, but people talked about, for example, how it's important to see holistic representations of blackness. So people were a little tired of trauma stories that are related to black people. So, you know, slavery and police brutality and death and illness and COVID, you know, everything that felt negative, people were tired of. So people also wanted to yeah, see, absolutely. yeah, right? Like people wanted to see mm-hmm. the black joy and the black connection and the black love and the leisure. Those things were missing. And when they saw those things, they felt, okay, this is, this is a place that I feel welcome because they see me and other people as a full person and not just a person who is just seen through perhaps this white lens that is just a lot of pain and suffering so that was one big distinction and then another um, way in which people talked about welcome was seeing visible and invisible signs of welcome so something visible or very um, obvious could be you know good customer service people smiling at you and saying hi because for many people for many black people there was no difference between rude and racist because if somebody's rude to you, you don't know why. And you have to wonder, okay, why? Why was that? So you have to do all these mental gymnastics. And that just affects your experience overall. So, and sometimes it's perhaps easier to, maybe safer even, to assume that it is racist so that you can actually protect yourself. So that, you know, overall, Small but positive interactions went a long way for making people feel welcomed. Another one was more, I guess, invisible stuff, if you will. So some people talked about, you know, going into a museum space about um, maybe the, um, the topic was related to black people or black history. And they read some text that explained, you know, what was happening and they could sense that it was written by a non-black person because they felt like, okay, a black person wouldn't say this thing. So that made, even though, you know, they don't necessarily know exactly who wrote it, even that sense of being able to tell who wrote it and that a black person wasn't represented in that process was um, was a factor that made a space unwelcome. So they could tell that they might not have been the intended audience for that particular exhibit. Exactly. Yeah. Or it felt like, okay, why are they even even doing this if Black people are not asked about their perspectives? And, you know, what's the purpose? What's 
what's happening behind the scenes. There was a lot of interest in behind the scenes. So, for example, if people went into a space and saw a lot of black workers, but they were only in the front lines and not in higher positions, that felt like, okay, what's happening? Why, why is there a discrepancy? Or if they only saw, they saw only one black person, that felt like, okay, why are they tokenizing this one person? Or is there a quota of one for black people in this organization? And it wasn't just black people, seeing black people even, but it was seeing kind of um, a diverse group of people. So that was deemed as something that was positive and welcoming because people really wanted to also like learn about you know, different experiences, what other people are going through, what other people are thinking, what other cultures are thinking about, and what, what do we share? Where do we differ? So there was a lot of interest in that. So people wanted to see that reflected in different spaces too. But if they don't, didn't see that, obviously, or saw it in very specific ways, then that communicated that perhaps this place wasn't really welcoming for black people or um, any person of color. So that's kind of a long-winded way of <laughs> talking about the themes. I remember when you first presented the research um, to some of my colleagues and myself, I remember you had an anecdote about a musician, um, I think it was a violinist. Uh, I wonder if you could share what, what that uh, scenario was. Yes, that's, that's, a, um, that's an important um, thing I haven't touched on yet. But yeah, so I think as people talked about welcome and trustworthiness, they also talked about wanting to see, that's similar to those holistic representations, but they also didn't want to see um, black innovators sidelined so, or put into a box. So this person, like you mentioned, was a um, classical violinist and they were really invested in their craft and they really wanted to create something different, you know, innovate and something, just create something kind of outside of the box. And then when they did that, they were told that, oh, you know, that, that's a black thing. You can do it over there. But then if a white person did something very similar, then they were celebrated as a genius who can be, you know, celebrated and who can, you know, give talks. And even though it wasn't even their idea, they just took it from another culture, but that wasn't acknowledged. So there were those dynamics. It was really important for that person to see in a space that... Um, Black genius and innovation was celebrated instead of sidelined or put into a box. So I think that's also another part of how to support belonging in a space or how to make a space welcoming and also how to communicate trustworthiness. Because when people see that these um, innovators are celebrated and they're seen and they're heard, then it brings people together. It supports that community level wellness and also connects people to each other. And that's something anyone who programs concerts can think about. If you have, you know, a certain program or a certain series around a certain idea, maybe thinking outside the box in terms of who you invite to participate. And on the converse uh, side, you know, not waiting until 
Black History Month to say, oh, look at all the great mm. <laughs> black innovators out there. But like, no, there are great, um, you know, musicians, composers, practitioners, the 11 months out of the year as well. So that's that's another mm-hmm. way that that can um, be applied, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another example that's kind of relevant um, is that this is more on the audience mm-hmm. side, but it's related to classical music. One person mentioned that they, in their neighborhood, they never see just, this is related to um, the symphony orchestra mm-hmm. in their um, in their city, and they never saw any advertisements, mm-hmm. so they had no idea how to go there, where to go. But then they went to a different community and it was a predominantly white community and they saw all these billboards Mm -hmm. and that made them think like, oh, so this is not advertised in my community, but it's advertised here. So that means that they don't want my viewership. Mm -hmm. They don't want they don't want me there. That's why they don't advertise here. They don't put their funds here. So that was another thing that kind of um, contributed that kind of sense of um, welcome, even just, you know, it's not even in the space. It's outside outside of the space. Just not seeing that presence communicated that something was, something was amiss. (laughs) So the bad news is there isn't a simple process that you can follow. You know, I hope everybody knows that by now, but it's worth reiterating. But the good news is that there are a lot of entry points. There are so many places to start and and doing anything you know is is better than nothing so i think i think that's a a positive uh we can take away from that mhm yeah yeah i think that's a great way to think about it like there are a lot of possibilities it's open ended but that's that's a good thing that's a good thing because it's endless <laughs> And now we'll take a moment to play a portion of Andy Akiho's Seven Pillars, performed by Sandbox Percussion. The score for the following selection which begins Pillar 3, appears in the summer 2022 issue of Chamber Music Magazine. Enjoy!
Thanks for listening. You just heard a selection from Andy Akiho's Pillar 3, performed by Sandbox Percussion. Don't forget to check out the score in the summer 2022 issue of Chamber Music Magazine. Thanks again to my guest, Melody Bukazar-Dawkins, for helping us dive deeper into the report, a place to be heard, a space to feel held. You can read more about the content from this episode in Chamber Music Magazine. The Slover Lynette Report is introduced in Close Listening, an article from the Spring 22 issue. And in addition to the score for the selection of seven pillars we just heard, the Summer 22 issue features details about Andy Akiho's composition process and his collaboration with the musicians and sandbox percussion. Visit chambermusicamerica.org magazine for more information. This episode of CMA Talks was produced for Chamber Music America by myself and Orchid McRae, our digital content editor. Melody Bukazar-Dawkins appeared courtesy of the Wallace Foundation, and the Seven Pillars selection was provided by Andy Akiho. Thanks for listening.